Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Thank you guys very much. Um, for those of you who don't know, you can actually buy their CD um, at their color fair. And you guys are on iTunes also, right? Yep. So if you enjoy worship with Ryan and Lily and the team, you can take that home with you as well. So thank you guys so much for coming, and uh, thanks for fellowshipping with us at the beginning. We've noticed that we're all rolling in a bit later than usual on Sunday afternoons. Um, as soon as the time change happened for Daylight Savings Time, I think we started saying, yes, I will enjoy that afternoon sunshine on a Sunday afternoon. And one of the reasons why Spark meets on Sunday afternoons is because I enjoy afternoon sunshine, actually. So, um, and I enjoy morning sunshine later. Um, than normal service. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, we're going to continue to sort of start our fellowship time together um, right around 4.15, 4.30 and hang out for a while and grab coffee and food and chat. Um, and then we'll start into worship about um, 10 or 15 minutes into service. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we'll have fellowship again after. Does that all sound cool? Yeah? That doesn't mean you should come later next week. That just means that you should come on time because church starts when you all get here. So, um, so church begins when we're all together, and whether we are officially singing a song at that point or not, it will start when you were here and we start to fellowship with one another and enjoy um, the great, amazing refreshments back there and, and all that stuff. So good to see you all. I'm um, excited to be with you. As Ryan mentioned, Kevin is in Mexico with the King's Academy, and um, so there's uh, several hundred kids down there, students, and um, I forget how many semi-trailers and tractors, three semi-semis, trucks, yeah, um, they go down. And Ryan and Lily were actually worship leaders for that event in Mexico a few years ago. So they actually know that um, Kevin, what Kevin's presently now doing, including sleeping in the van. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great fun experience. I think they're building 13 houses um, this week, the students. So it's very exciting. Um, and thanks for uh, everyone else for helping um, spark go as you know Kevin gets a lot done so I'm going to hopefully talk to him later and I'll be able to say we did it um, we we actually got it done with everybody here and not just me so thanks so much for everything and um, we are in the middle of our Jesus series we've been asking a series of questions about the person of Jesus we've been um, wanting to wrestle a little bit whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time if you know him or you think you know him or if you just have a lot of questions about who he is, um, I know that Easter time brings a thousand and one programs on cable network, including now the Bible series, which I've heard is um, very exciting. Um, I haven't watched it <laughs> just because we don't have cable. And also, um, I, I don't like to watch all the time because I have pictures in my head from going to Israel a lot. And so I don't, um, don't want to replace those pictures. But um, these are pictures actually from Israel, so you can hold on to some of these as you watch different series. And as we've gone through the last couple weeks of our Jesus seminar, series, not the Jesus seminar, Jesus series, um, the first week we asked the question, who do you say that I am? And we kind of talked about that question that Jesus asks his disciples and what our response to that might be. And last week we asked the question, who's your daddy? And we talked a bit about the genealogy of Jesus and what it meant for him to have a heavenly father and also how his earthly parents functioned for him um, and what it means for us to be called sons and daughters of the king as well. And this week we're asking the question, how's the water? 
Um, and so this is a picture, actually, of the Sea of Galilee um, with a nice boat right out there that you can take um, from one side of the sea to the other. They're not exactly like they were in Jesus' day. Um, sometimes they come with um, disco music and um, <coughs> other things that <laughs> you can experience. There's a, a wonderful friend of ours who um, is a messianic singer on the Sea of Galilee. But there's something, uh, he runs a boat company, and it's actually how he came to be a follower of Jesus. Um, he's an Israeli Jew. Uh, it was because he kept put bringing all these Christians out on the sea all the time, and they kept telling these stories, and he ended up um, learning more about the person of Christ and, and came to faith in him. But he, um, like a lot of other cultures, um, with the musical styling, loves reverb, like just loves it. I don't know if you've ever been to another culture or community where reverb is the thing. So when you're out with him on the Sea of Galilee, he has this beautiful voice and wonderful songs, but he always turns it up to like 10, you know, on the reverb side. And so you're on the Sea of Galilee, and then those of you, you some of you have been with me, with him on the boat, yeah? It's like, kadosh, 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 right? It's just, holy, holy, it just echoes across the whole scene. I'm always like, less reverb. <laughs> I think it's a little more authentic, but it's really beautiful and fun, and we have a great time. And I actually have been on the Sea of Galilee when it's stormy, um, and it gets pretty stormy, but it's pretty small. As you can see from this point of view, you can see all around the lake. It's much smaller than Lake Tahoe, and um, that's the Sea of Galilee. So today we're going to ask the question, how's the water? We're going to discuss a little bit, actually, about the Jordan River. Um, this is a picture of the Jordan in Israel, and there are parts of the Jordan that have a lot of rapids in them. The Jordan runs um, all the way down from, the, all the way from the north in Mount Hermon, all the way down to the sea, to the Dead Sea, and we'll show you a map in just a minute. The reason why we're going to talk about the Jordan River is because we want to look at and examine Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus and his baptism. So shall we dive in a little bit? Yes? All right. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Here's another picture of the Jordan. And so we have now, according to our story in Matthew, and this event is also covered in Mark and Luke, and you can read those additional accounts. They're all pretty similar. Um, that John is out in the Jordan River baptizing, and that people from all over are coming to see him. This is most of the time when I see pictures of John the Baptist in media, he looks like this. Now, it says in our Bible that he has a coat of camel's hair, yeah, and um, he has a, this, though, if you look up close, it's like mink fur. It's definitely not at all camel's hair. Um, they got like a little sash, right? And doesn't he always look slightly like he might be on crack? Just constantly, every time I see these images of John the Baptist in any media, he's always like, <sighs> repent, and then people are like, and somehow that's causing everyone in all of Judea to flock to the Jordan River. And the problem I have with this is that I don't actually think people would flock to see a crazy man. I don't think they would flock all the way from Jerusalem where there's a nice cool breeze and things are quite lovely and go down through the wilderness to hang out at the Jordan River to see a crazy man. Like there's going to, trust me, plenty of crazy in Jerusalem. 
Like they don't need to travel 15 miles in the desert and then hike that kind of extent back up to Jerusalem just to go see a crazy person. So um, if this is the image, and by the way, doesn't this, he kind of looks like surfer John the Baptist, yeah? So um, this guy, he's, he's, he's having trouble. He's in a trance. Um, so if this is any of the image that you have of John the Baptist in your head, let's just try to set that aside for a little bit. Um, those are more modern images. Those aren't the images there. And why would John be in the wilderness? Well, let's do a punctuation check. Is it a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare, or a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare? And in terms of how they were interpreting it in Jesus' day, um, right there when we look at this passage, there we're looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And when we look at Isaiah in this passage, it looks as though the punctuation matters significantly. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. So the truth was that there is a community that lived by the Dead Sea, and they are called the Essenes, and they were Jews who were of the priestly line, and they wanted to keep the priesthood pure. They felt like things were getting corrupt back in Jerusalem, and they also wanted to go out into the wilderness to fulfill this calling. They wanted the Messiah to come, and so they actually interpreted that verse, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare or in the, they actually interpret it to go out into the wilderness and prepare this. So that's why they're all the way out there. Does that make sense? Kind of a different punctuation. It's not just that some guy is out in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, but it's that you should go to the wilderness in order to prepare the way of the Lord. So there was a whole community that took this on significantly and lived in the wilderness, right here on the north section of the, sea of, of the Dead Sea, um, in Qumran, and they found a whole um, sort of com commune, would be maybe a way we'd say it, a sort of a monastic community. Here is an aerial shot of what they found there. Um, in these caves here, they found scrolls, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, copies of the Bible that are older than Jesus, and that were kept during that time in order to preserve the word of God. In Qumran, as they were out there in this community, there was some um, incredible emphasis spent on purity. It wasn't just that we wanted to only go out in the wilderness and live, but they actually were in some ways monastic. It doesn't look like there were a lot of women and children in the community. There was mostly men. And that they were sitting there, sometimes even have a war scroll where they're a bit violent in how they want to respond to the corruption they see going on in Jerusalem. And they're out there in the desert trying to live in such a way and trying to be pure in such a way that the Messiah will come. As a result, they found a lot of these installations called mikvah. Say mikvah. Or plural, mikvahot. Mikvahot, good job. It's a ritual immersion pool. And in Jesus' day and before, in the Second Temple period, um, ritual immersion was an important part of how we would practice, how the people of God would practice their faith. Primarily, in the area of Jerusalem, people did ritual immersion in order to actually get physically pure. So if they had had some ritual impurity, um, some sickness, some emission, something like that, they would go and get ritually pure in order to go and participate again in the community or go and worship God at the temple. But the Essene community out here on the Dead Sea seems to be focused a lot on not just physical purity, though that was a huge emphasis, but also on purity and repentance of the soul. 
really focused on actually changing your ways. Now, John the Baptist is not an Essene, but it's possible that because, if you'll recall, he's from the priestly line, that maybe he was out there or his family had some sort of um, connection or he had some sort of connection at, at some time with that type of community. And he's separated from them a bit in part because John really wants everyone to repent, whereas the Essene community is really focused on just their small community and only them. But John is now in the wilderness, and he's calling everyone to this baptism of repentance. Here's, here's one mikvah. You would walk down on in and then come back the other side up. In fact, some of the installations had uh, small partitions in the middle. Here you can see um, some partitions to keep it so that the person who was impure walking down into the water wouldn't touch the person who was now pure coming out. Um, this is, can you imagine getting water all the way out here in the desert? And they found these type of installations all over in Qumran. And it's funneled by an aqueduct. In fact, I can show you um, here. They actually would take the rainwater that's coming down the hills in, Ju in Judah, in Jerusalem, and channel that through aqueducts in order to make sure it could fill all of their immersion pools throughout. They were so focused on ritual purity. Now, the Jordan River is kind of the best mikvah you can get. In fact, later on, after the time of Jesus, the rabbis will sit down and they'll discuss about the quality of different mikvah. In fact, one of the things that was required for a mikvah was that it had to be water that you didn't do anything for. Water that wasn't man-made, that wasn't drawn by a well and put in there, but water that God himself gave you, living water. So what better type of mikvah than a running water like a river? So when John is out at the Jordan saying, repent and be baptized, John the Baptist, literally in Greek, John the Immerser, when John the Immerser is out there making that cry, people have a concept for what he's asking them to do. Does that make sense? And I like that because I feel that one of the things that happens um, in life is sometimes we're, we're so far away from Jesus that we feel like the leap he's asking us to take is too big. But instead here, God is very clearly paving the way so that there's an entire practice that's involved so that by the time John the Baptist shows up to fulfill the words of Isaiah and to prepare the way for Jesus himself, there's already a system in place where people are going to understand that and get that. They're going to know why they're getting into the water. Make sense? Cool. Should we, you want to take a couple more pictures? Oh, we'll stop here. Josephus actually talks about John the Baptist. Josephus was a first century historian. Um, a Jew who ended up um, working with the Romans um, after they came into the land after the, um, just before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. And he writes this about John the Baptist. He explains a little bit about baptism. John was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God, and in so doing, join in baptism, in immersion. In John's view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was going to be acceptable to God. They must employ baptism to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but it was a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by right behavior. So any concept and thought that somehow you can go dunk into water and then that just makes you somehow clean, Josephus says that's not what John is doing. That instead, the process is that there's something that has already happened in you. 
And now this is the picture and the symbol that we participate. We get into the water in order to demonstrate that we are getting another chance, that we're getting an, a second chance, we're getting an opportunity to start fresh, to start anew, that repentance has already occurred. It might make a little more sense than when you start to hear John say to the people who were coming to watch, and he says, you brood of vipers. There's something in there that John knows they haven't actually repented yet. This isn't just about jumping into water. There's something there where John's looking for a life change. And Josephus talks about that. Our earliest depiction of baptism um, from Christian catacombs in Rome looks a little like this. And I don't know if this will upset you or not. But in our earliest depictions, the people aren't clothed. So um, they don't have swimsuits. Um, And that wouldn't have upset them. Okay, just so you know, it's not like they're being immodest. That's the culture of that time. It's not upsetting. Here's the earliest one we have from a Roman catacomb, and this is an artist's reproduction of it. You see the dove here, and here are the figures, um, sort of showing the process of potentially maybe Jesus' baptism. This is about year 200 AD. So it's not, a co- it's not a photograph, okay? It's not a Kodak, Polaroid of the event, but it's at least how people were remembering it the closest to the event. Um, here are the wall. This is the wall of the southern steps into the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I show this to you only because in this area, they've found tens and tens and tens of mikvah oat. Here are some up close. Why would all of those ritual immersion pools be right there at the base of the pilgrim entrance to the temple? Yeah. You're going to go worship God, so you're going to go and get clean and participate in ritual immersion before you go and do that. Ritual immersion was also, by the time of Jesus, being used for converts. So if you were a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism, part of what you would do would be to participate in ritual immersion. And there'd be other various reasons while you're doing it. I just throw this all out because I think I grew up believing that John the Baptist was the first person that ever dunked anybody. And that somehow all these people came out from far and away because they just really wanted to, you know, get dunked on into the Jordan River. And they'd never been in water before. But that's just really not true. In the hundred years plus prior to the time of Jesus, particularly the second temple period, there's a lot of emphasis on this type of ritual purity and immersion. Here's another one in front of the Temple Mount. This installation here is north of the temple, and it would have looked like this. You guys know it as the pools of Bethesda. And this would have been a larger ritual immersion pool that would have been for the poor as they're coming in. Because you can see, as you would get into waters like this, would you, if you're, if you're poor, you're going to be in something larger because it's not going to be as nice, right? Let me show you what, this is the one in the south, the Pool of Siloam. We also think was a larger ritual mer- immersion pool for the, that's what it would have looked like, just south of the temple. Um, f- again, for poor, for the pilgrims as they're approaching. And they, they've actually just, just a couple years ago uncovered this street that leads up to the Temple Mount. It's really fun to walk on. Um, and then... In Jerusalem, in the upper city where the rich people lived, they found this. They found homes, a beautiful Herodian mansion, and we think this belonged particularly to the priestly family, and these homes had in them their own ritual immersion pools. Here's one going down, and there's a picture of it. So if you were wealthy, you had your own spa in your own place. 
And all of this water would have had to been funneled in through various means, not something that they're bringing in themselves. Uh, notice this person's participating in foot washing, and that's a foot washing basin there. And now let's go back to the Jordan River where John is. As John is out there baptizing, this happens. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Why would Jesus, who those of us of faith believe is pure, holy, never sinned, why would he need to go and participate in this baptism of repentance, this ritual immersion that John is doing down at the Jordan River? What benefit would that be? Let's keep asking that question. Why is Jesus there? Why is he going to get into the water? In the ancient worldview of the Israelite, water had a lot of heavy meaning. It wasn't just that it could cleanse and that it could bring life. But in the ancient worldview of the Israelite, according to what we really read in the beginning of Genesis chapters 1 and on, in that prim primordial, primeval worldview, the Israelite would picture the world almost as this singular um, cutout here that you could see where there's windows and doors into heaven. God is up here. The water's above the heavens that would go through what they felt was sort of this firmament in Hebrew, rakia. And then as the water would come down, we would be able to see these different things. In fact, did anyone have a picture of the world like this when you were a kid? Did you ever lay down you know, in the backyard of your home, we're looking up at the stars and kind of picture dark construction paper that had pinpricked holes through? Or am I the only kid that did that? That's how I pictured the world growing up because I, I felt like I could see the dome and that somebody like this really cool planetarium had just pricked, you know, little holes through and I was watching a giant light above shine through. That's a little bit like that ancient worldview. Apparently, I'm an ancient Israelite. And, um, and then we have the earth here with mountains sort of creeping up. And this is the sea and the great deep, the storehouses of those fountains. And here is Sheol. In the ancient worldview, the sea and the deep was the abyss. And there was some chaos involved. Let's read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, of the abyss, in Hebrew, to home. So darkness is over that as God starts his creative process. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in Hebrew, that word for hover has a lot, it, it's the same type of word that if a, a bird comes in and hovers over its nest of its young. So somehow in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, we get a picture of, yes, there are waters, yes, there's chaos, yes, there's an abyss, and that depth and that darkness and those waters, God is hovering over that. And in the midst of that, God says, let there be light. So the first instances that we have of the waters of the world being described are about chaos and abyss and darkness a bit. Let's move forward in our story. We've got the next time waters are really described in our story is the flood with Noah, yes? And in that, the entire earth is covered. Noah, the book of Genesis tells us. 
and Noah is trying to figure out what's happened. Everything's been covered over again. Chaos has happened again. And yet now we're going to have another picture. When the dove returned to Noah in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf, and Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. We have this picture of hovering again, of God somehow starting to bring life back out of those waters and out of that chaos, even though things went crazy. And by the way, if you want some fun later on, you can read in um, 1 Peter chapter 3. In fact, I'll just read it for you really quick because it's super fun. Peter writes this about the flood. He says, Those who disobeyed long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, and in the ark only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water, Peter says this, this water symbolizes baptism. So Peter says that the flood waters are pictures of baptism, of immersion, of somehow something being covered over again, but then coming back up again. That's what Peter says, that he sees when he sees the flood, he thinks of baptism. And it makes a little bit of sense, yes? Because he was there, we're presuming, when he sees Jesus get baptized. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What's another picture we have? We have that picture of God as the Israelites are being pursued by the Egyptians. God sort of breathing his breath and separating the water so Israel can be sent through the Red Sea. So the chaos is removed. And dry land, Israel gets to go through on dry land. So God's in charge of those waters. We have that crazy story with Jonah and the big fish. And Jonah ends up having to get tossed into the waters that are chaotic. And then all of a sudden everything comes calm. But then there's this creature, this big fish that comes and swallows up Jonah and then spits him out later on, vomits him out a little bit later on dry land. So in that story, we learn that God's in charge even of the creatures in the abyss, which is good news that John is going to latch on to in the book of Revelation because he's going to say in chapter 20 of Revelation, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the, key, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss. In John's picture in Revelation, the abyss is where the dragon, the Satan is, the serpent is. That that's kind of this crazy place where, where, yes, God's in control, and yet there's some chaos there. And then you'll be happy to know that in chapter 21, where all things are set to right, John says this, there was no longer any sea. And for those of us who love the ocean, don't get sad. I think the picture simply is that, that John is saying that the home of the beast is gone. So the waters in the ancient world symbolized all of that kind of stuff. So now let's go back to the Jordan River, where the Jordan River is fast moving. Starting up here at the headwaters of Mount Hermon, it's 9,200 feet plus above sea level. By the time it gets to the Sea of Galilee, which is 685 feet below sea level, and these are just, it's about 30, 40 miles. So the Jordan, Yarden in Hebrew means to go down. That's why, because it's going fast. Fast down. And then it's going to go down again from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, which is about 1,275 feet below sea level. So you can see this rapid down movement into the Jordan. The Jordan is fast moving. We, here's, a, here's an aerial shot of it. Um, and this is in the portion right near the wilderness between the Sea of Galilee and the northern portion of the Dead Sea. And you can start to see how it's starting to snake a little bit more rather than move quite so fast. But there are fast moving parts. 
For those of you who stood in the Jordan, there are points when the, the current can feel rough. And in fact, we even have a picture from 1935 of the Jordan flooded. Look at that. Can you believe that? 1935, the Jordan River flooded over those plains in Israel. That's how big the Jordan got then. Now remember this story. The Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest, and yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing from the book of Joshua. So Israel has all of those stories in their mind as they're coming down to the Jordan River where John is. And they've got pictures like this at flood stage where God somehow is still stopping up those waters of chaos. If, you, if that's your home, what's your life like? Chaos. Like the abyss has kind of won at this moment. And in the middle of this chaos... Jesus steps into the water. And as soon as he was immersed, baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was ripped open and the spirit of God descended like a dove and alighted on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. Jesus steps into those chaotic waters. He steps into that symbol that, yes, had the picture of ritual immersion, but also had the picture of chaos and abyss and power. Have you ever been to the ocean and watched the power of those waves? Have you ever been swimming the ocean and gotten scared? I've been out in a wave and, and gotten a little bit frightened. Um, in fact, Kevin doesn't like to swim in the ocean very much. And um, when we were, years ago, we were in Hawaii together, and I love to swim in the ocean. And so I was way out far, because it, it's easier actually swim further from shore where the surf isn't crashing on top of you the whole time. And Kevin stood at the shore, you know, got up from reading his book, which is his normal place to stand, and, um, and started shouting. He calls me Punkette. Um, Too far! Punkette! <laughs> too far. And I'm like just out floating in the ocean. And I'm like, what? And he's like, too far. Come in. And I'm, I'm a grown up. Okay. Like I, I'm not a child. I can swim out in the ocean. But the reason why he's shouting too far, too far, is because he knows the power of the ocean. He knows that it's beautiful and then it can give life those waters, but those waters can also be chaotic. And there's also some danger in it. If that's the symbol of water, what does it mean to us to see our Messiah get into those waters for us? He enters into our chaos. He enters into those waters that cause us difficulty. Those moments of life where we're feeling out of control. Those times where everything's just too big and we're not sure when the rogue wave is going to take us out next. In all of that, God enters in and starts to bring some order. And it's only in the midst of those waters, that river, that we start to hear the proclamation of who he is. That God starts to shout from heaven and say, now I can tell you who he is. This is my son. 
whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. Have you ever found that it's once you're in the middle of the chaos that you can hear God's voice a bit better than you could before? I don't know if that's been true for you, but it's certainly been true for me. And I'm not saying I like the chaos. Those waters can be rough. I don't like being tossed about. And, and I don't like being out there in that all the time. But if that's what needs to happen in order to hear the voice of God, then there's something good in the midst of that chaos, just like God was hovering over the surface of the deep and the abyss in Genesis 1, speaking life, let there be light, and there was light. Here in the midst of it, as Jesus, God in human flesh, God in a bod, gets down into the Jordan River, and then God can speak. And in the midst of all of that chaos that's going on in the first century, in the midst of all of the chaos up in Jerusalem where the rich have those really sweet, fancy homes and the poor are stuck on the sides of society, the literal margins of society not invited in, in the midst of the chaos where the priesthood has become corrupt with Rome and the Essenes are saying, let's get out to the desert so we can try to prepare a way for the Messiah. And if that means we have to take up a sword, we will. In the midst of all of that chaos, John goes down to the rivers and says, everyone come, get in the water to represent what has already happened in your soul and let God start afresh and anew in you. And as Luke tells the story, tax collectors are coming and sinners are coming. And John isn't saying to them, stay out of the water till you get your life together and then get in. He's like, great, you've come, get in. And he sends them on their way. Inviting everyone into that opportunity to start to see God bring order out of the chaos of their lives. For some of us, the day before we entered baptismal waters was the most chaotic time. Whether you're talking about that baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us, or the baptism that only then comes when we do water baptism as a symbol. But do you remember the time before you knew Jesus, for those of you followers? Those moments sometimes were pretty chaotic. But when Jesus speaks into your life through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, order comes. New life comes. And we start to see God bring out something beautiful and good, even though there was some chaos. I think that's why Jesus gets in the water to show us what it's like to enter into our chaos and to show us that he has power over it and he can speak in it and it also identifies him for us. By the way, if you want some fun, you should note that God has quoted his own book. This is my son, Psalm 2, a very messianic passage about, about the Messiah and the rulership of God. Whom I love, Genesis chapter 22, with the call of Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain. And with him I am well pleased. Isaiah 42, that beautiful passage that starts to talk about the Messiah and the renewal of Israel. God quotes his own book, and he pulls from each portion of it, from the Torah, from the writings, from the prophets, in order to make sure that you just know that Jesus is there to fulfill it all. He fulfills the whole thing. It's fun when God quotes his own book. 
I had a professor that said Jesus never said anything original because he was quoting his own book all the time. Yep. So that dove comes back again, that picture of God hovering over the chaos again, that picture of God saying, yes, things are a little bit out of sorts here, but now I've sent my son, and he's going to enter into the world with you. He's going to enter into that chaos, and I'm going to call him out, and he's going to start to do for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. That turbulent Jordan River. What's your chaos now? Are you feeling a little pushed by those waves? And in the midst of it, can you trust that God is there with you? And he's hovering over the chaos. And if you're not in chaos, maybe somebody you love is. Maybe somebody you care about is there. And maybe there's something you can do for that person to let them know that God is with them that God is there with them in the midst of that. John himself was going to enter into some chaos pretty quickly. In Matthew chapter 11, we find out that John is in prison. When John heard in, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the coming one, Jesus? Because if you are, if you're the coming one prophesied, if you're the one that the book of Daniel talks about, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, if you are literally the coming one, why am I in prison? And John starts to experience chaos right away. Why is John in prison? Matthew 14 tells us, and Josephus tells us as well. Do you guys remember the story in Matthew 14? Let's go back here for a second just to revisit. John's in prison because he said some stuff that made somebody angry. John's in prison because he spoke truth to power. John chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his tenants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, because at this point, Herod had already killed him. That's why miraculous powers are working him. By the way, why would they think that John's risen from the dead? Who, did, who was John compared to originally, and what kind of clothes is he wearing that compares him to that prophet? Which prophet? Elijah. Did Elijah ever die? No, he was taken up to heaven, right? So there's this question of like, dude, if John was Elijah come back, then now, uh-oh, right? And so there's some freak out. Okay, so Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. Herod had taken his brother's wife, who was actually like also a relative. It's very sketchy. And in the middle of all of that, the woman that he was married to before was the daughter of Eratos, the king of Arabia. And so when he divorces her in order to marry Herodias, John says, not cool. It's going to cause disruption amongst the powers, right? I mean, you're not allowed to just steal somebody's wife and, and also toss aside another wife. Most marriages were political, and those marriages were political. But John's going to talk about that and have an issue with it. Now, Jesus also is going to talk about it. A lot of times we quote those verses about divorce. Jesus talks about how... If you are divorcing someone and then remarrying them, you're committing adultery, yes? That process there, in the Greek it really says, if you've divorced someone in order to marry another, you've committed adultery. That's 
really commentary on this. Jesus is talking about this. You can't divorce somebody and then in order to marry another and just pretend like that's kosher. It's not. It's adultery. You've divorced that person in order to marry somebody else. It's, it's adultery. So that's what John is talking about. Plus, there's a violation of the Levitical law here. You're not supposed to do that with your brother's wife. It's like a rule. Okay, so... Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. So whatever John is doing, that wild-eyed picture of him that we have where he looks like he's on crack cocaine, it's not quite true because if it were just a crazy person, Herod wouldn't have felt threatened. He wouldn't have heard about him in the first place. And all those people from all over wouldn't have come to hear and they wouldn't have considered him a prophet. John is fully actu actuating his prophetic call in the midst of all the people, and Herod knows it, and so did his new wife, who gets pretty ticked about it. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them. Do you guys remember her name? It's Salome. If you haven't heard the U2 song, Salome, you can just go in and put that in YouTube and, you know. Here, yeah. There's a lot of um, poems and stories about this incident. Because on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much. By the way, would you be so pleased with the daughter of your wife dancing for you? It's all sketchy. That he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed, but because of the oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And there they went and told Jesus. Josephus talks about this event. You see, about 36 AD, Herod went to war with his ex-father-in-law. And he lost. Sorry, before that. It was a little before that. It might be what Jesus is referring to. He says, you know, that someone who doesn't count the cost of discipleship, it's like a king who goes off to war and doesn't count the cost first. Herod suffered an embarrassing defeat. And Josephus tells us that the Jews said it was because of his killing John the Baptist. To some of the Jews, the destruction of Herod's army seemed to be divine vengeance, and certainly a just vengeance for his treatment of John, surnamed the Baptist. For Herod had put him to death, though he was a good man, and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows, piety towards God, and in so doing, join in baptism. When others, too, joined the crowds about him because they were roused to the highest degree by his sermons, John apparently was a great order, Herod became alarmed. Eloquence that had so great an effect on mankind might lead to some form of sedition, for it looked as though they would be guided by John in everything that they did. So Herod decided, therefore, it would be much better to strike first and be rid of him before his work led to an uprising than to wait for an upheaval, get involved in a difficult situation, and see his mistake. Though John, because of Herod's suspicions, was brought in chains to Machaerus, the stronghold that we've previously mentioned, and there put to death, yet the verdict of the Jews was that the destruction visited upon Herod's army was a vindication of John, since God saw fit to inflict such a blow on Herod. John's in chaos when he sends those disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come? He probably knows he's going to die. And he's in this fortress right here on the side of the Dead Sea in Machaerus, which is incredibly difficult to escape from or to bre breach into. No one's coming to save him. If you're there, you're stuck. And this is an artist's rendition of what that fortress would have looked like. And you can imagine that party there 
with all the debauchery. And somehow it's going to look like in the midst of that chaos that God doesn't win. And as John's head is brought into that madness, you can even picture and wonder if some of the disciples of John are sitting there going, really? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is it even possible? Have you ever been in the midst of chaos in such a way in your own life that it just feels to you that God has left his throne and that he's not there anymore and he's not paying attention and he hasn't cared? But the larger portion of our story tells us that God is in the midst of those chaotic waters, that he has taken on human flesh deliberately to take on all of that in order to fully enter in. And even if it's true in my own life sometimes that I feel like God has not done what I've wanted him to do, he's not broken me out of that prison, he's not rescued me if I'm John from Herod's hand, it doesn't mean that Jesus is not still at work. And when John's disciples go and say, are you the one who is to come? In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, go back to John and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. John, don't, don't give up. Don't fall away. John's not going to see rescue come in pulling him out of the chaos of that prison. But John participated in the ushering in of the Messiah, preparing the way for him in such a way that Messiah could bring order from all of it and ultimately on that cross usher in the new reign and new rule of the king. Even Jesus' disciples are shocked that Jesus has power over this type of chaos. When he calms the wind and the waves, their response is, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that can somehow bring order to the abyss? Who is this? And Jesus' answer is that he's God. And he's stepping into the midst of all of that chaos in our life. If you're experiencing some of that chaos today, I want to tell you that God is hovering over it. And he is with you in the midst of it, and he won't let you go. It may not turn out the way that we want, but he's with you. And if you're not experiencing that chaos, then help somebody who is, because I guarantee somebody in your life, right alongside you, maybe sitting next to you right now, is in the midst of that kind of chaos and is begging for some sort of hope that Jesus can pull out and declare his full rule and reign in our life, even in the midst of that kind of madness. So how's the water? Are you willing to get in for somebody else and step into their chaos? Are you willing to trust that Jesus is there with you in the midst of it? Are you willing to hear in the midst of that chaos the ripping open of, God, of heavens as God speaks to you and says, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. You're mine. In those waters, we get to find out whose we are. And then we get to come out and start afresh start brand new. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to enter into our chaos. Thank you, Lord, for 
creating beauty in the midst of chaos, for causing there to be light in the midst of that darkness. God, thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on your Son so that he could start to bring order and restoration and healing in the world, so that the blind could see, so that the lame could walk, so that the dead could be raised, and that the poor could hear the good news preached to them. Jesus, some of us here in this room need a touch and a feel of your presence. Maybe we're standing on this side of the baptism of your spirit, and we're just praying, God, for a touch from you that would show that we're yours. God, this time can feel so chaotic. Would you help us move closer, take the courage and the step to get into the waters with you and start to see you bring us up out of that chaos into a new life. Jesus, these pictures that you've told from the beginning of time and before until the end that demonstrate your rule and reign and authority over all the waters in our life, all the turbulent times, God, would you just help us to trust you? Help us to hear your voice in the midst of all of it. Help us to trust that you're with us. And help us to love one another in those chaotic moments. Thank you for the waters. Thank you for the waters of baptism. Thank you for the ways that you restore us. And Jesus, thank you for being with us. And thank you for being so mighty that you're in charge of all of it, that you can speak to it and say, be still, and that we can stand in awe of you. Speak, Lord, and pull us out of our chaos. In Jesus' name, amen.